Rogues Gallery Uncovered Bad behaviour in period costume Non-judgmentally prying into the scandalous lives of history's greatest libertines, Lotharios and complete bastards. This podcast contains adult themes and the occasional bit of colourful language. If this is likely to offend, well, considering this week's subject, you're in very good company. Pride and extreme prejudice. Ignorant, bigoted and permanently outraged. With Colonel Charles Delat, Waldo Sibthorpe. Before we start, a quick roguish shout-out to Tim in Thailand, who emailed me last week to suggest a 1960s rogue who was based in Southeast Asia. Nicknamed Cowboy, this particular reprobate ticks many roguish boxes and will therefore certainly be featured in an upcoming episode. Cheers, Tim. It's great when listeners get in touch, and I heartily encourage it. Simon at roguesgalleryonline.com. The address is in the show notes. Or, of course, you could visit roguesgalleryuncovered.com, the website. What do you think of the podcast? Who would you like to hear featured? Do you have a roguish story you'd like to share? Whatever the reason, it would be absolutely fantastic to hear from you. Now, you might initially think that the subject of this week's episode would be placed in the complete bastards category of rogues, as he clearly had some outrageous views. They were even outrageous at the time. I, however, have placed him in the libertines section. As ignorant and comically ill-informed as he was, he appears to have been more of a laughable eccentric than outright malicious. And as the podcast's definition of libertine is someone who lives their life exactly as they please without giving a damn what society thinks about them, I reckon he fits in there quite nicely. You, of course, might completely disagree, or indeed agree wholeheartedly. Email to let me know. Anyway, the following tale is written in the present tense of the period in which it's set, and as such may contain attitudes and opinions of the protagonists and their times which would today be considered unacceptable. As I am most definitely not a somewhat confused 19th century letter writer who's terrified of the future and anything he doesn't understand, like trains, those attitudes and opinions are obviously not mine. England 1852. Sir, as a proud Englishman, who despairs of the depraved cesspit of moral filth into which this once great country has become immersed, may I use the pages of your august, if somewhat liberal, newspaper to extol the virtues of the one gentleman who alone stands between Albion and the blackest pits of hell, namely Charles de Latte Waldo Sibthorpe. I heartily agree with this visionary man when he says that foreigners should be distrusted, science and progress is ruining this country, and the world was a far, far better place in the halcyon days of our golden youth. He speaks his mind and stands by his principles, and I, for one, think he should be Prime Minister. He'd make a damn sight better job of it than that half-wit Lord Derby. Colonel Sibthorpe may be routinely mocked by those over-educated young vipers at Punch, along with that upstart Charles Dickens, but none who have seen him addressing the House of Lords, as he has done frequently for the past 25 years, can doubt his sincerity. His recent opposition to the so-called 
great exhibition is the perfect illustration of the man. An exhibition of the trumpery and trash of foreigners who had no business to be here at all is exactly how he described it, and I for one agree. Colonel Sibthorpe maintains that last year's great exhibition was nothing more than an excuse for foreign nations, especially the French, to flood the Great British Isles with hordes of devious spies and malcontents. <laughs> These European visitors' only intent was to take away with them details of our country's defences while leaving behind their disgusting continental morals. He passionately maintained that the exhibition would also lead to a debasing of the Sabbath, political disharmony, possibly even revolution, and an entire country becoming bankrupt. Although none of this has yet come to pass, it can surely be only a matter of time. I will speak little of the Crystal Palace itself, but suffice it to say that I am with Colonel Sibthorpe, who calls it a palace of tomfoolery and an unwholesome castle of glass. He warned of good, honest labouring folk leaving their farms and journeying all the way to London to see it. Well, the nation could starve. These labouring poor, unused to the greater expenses of our glorious capital, may need to pawn the very clothes from their backs in order to afford the fare. Thousands of them might roam our streets, destitute and quite naked. This cannot be allowed to happen. And as for the number of English trees that needed to be cut down to accommodate this architectural folly, well, it's a scandal. Colonel Sibthorpe was the only man brave enough to stand proudly in the House of Lords and raise the possibility that the entire enterprise was a subtle plot by His Royal Highness Prince Albert, a German, to overthrow the entire British Empire. Of course, like the good Colonel, I have never visited the Crystal Palace myself and have no intention of doing so. He said that the thought of setting foot in the structure physically sickened him and hoped that God would share his misgivings and destroy it utterly with lightning bolt or hailstorm. The Almighty could do worse than listen to Colonel Sibthorpe. This country is teetering on the edge of a precipice and yet I have heard him described as a man of bigoted views and limited intelligence. Well, if he is, then so am I. Like the Colonel, I grew to manhood in the glorious days of the late 18th century. A time of hot summers, staunch morals, little crime and general public happiness. The only dark cloud hovering above this Elysium was caused by a Frenchman, Napoleon, and we soon sent him packing. Everything since those days has been confusing, degenerate, unnecessary, liberal and unchristian. Life would be so much better if we could go back to living how we did 60 years ago. Without the constant warfare and smallpox, of course. Colonel Sibthorpe wisely rejects modern clothing. Trousers? And instead wears the frock coat, top boots and quizzing glasses which were more than good enough for respectable men of fashion in 1799. But what of morality? In the days before modern factories, the moral fabric of Britain was unbreakable. 
Colonel Sibthorpe has often loudly despaired of the moral laxity of these so-called Victorian years, which creeps like a noxious vapour across the very fabric of our society. True, his wife was awarded an uncontested separation from him back in 28, because of his long-term assignation with a woman of low character. But it seems obvious to me that Colonel Sibthorpe was taken advantage of in a two-year moment of weakness by a lewd and designing female. I regard stories that he would often attend Parliament after spending the evening at a bawdy house as the spiteful rumour-mongering of foreign agitators. His supposed enjoyment of rough congress I treat with the same disdain, although there is nothing wrong with a good flogging, as it builds a man's character. The Colonel may not have actually graduated from Oxford, but the man has good old-fashioned English common sense by the cartload. This he would have displayed 30 years ago at his very first political hustings, had he not been struck on the head and rendered unconscious by a missile thrown from the crowd at the exact moment that he got up to speak. Undeterred, he campaigned vigorously against parliamentary reform. His opposition to even the slightest change, an inspiration for us all. With the greatest respect, I quote him as follows. On no account would I sanction any attempts to subvert that glorious fabric, our matchless constitution, which has reached its present perfection by the experience of ages, by any newfangled schemes which interested or deluded individuals might bring forward. And those who expect any advantages from such notions will find their visions go like a vapour and vanish into nothing. It was on this intransigent basis that he was elected, and he proudly stands as MP for Lincoln to this very day. Sadly, Her Majesty refuses to set foot in Lincoln. In 1839, on the eve of her marriage, Colonel Sibthorpe wisely persuaded the government to reduce the amount of her husband-to-be, Prince Albert's, annuity payment, because he was a foreigner. She appears to have taken extreme offence at this and maintains her show of displeasure to this very day. Colonel Sibthorpe's behaviour, however, only highlights what a financially vigilant man he is. Who else would suggest that all British diplomats work for no salary? After all, they're not performing their duties on British soil, and that building work which takes longer than its allotted time to complete, such as the National Gallery, should immediately be pulled down. And I fear that his concerns over the insidious spread of the railways is well-founded. He has often described steam trains as a new and degrading form of transport, which will cause a wholesale slaughter of those foolish enough to climb aboard. In common with many of my generation, I suspect that they are simply a passing fancy and will soon go the way of the hot air balloon. Mark my words, by the 1870s we shall all have returned to travelling along turnpikes in well-appointed stagecoaches, as God himself intended. In regarding anything, modern, foreign or forward-thinking, as a humbug, Colonel Sibthorpe reflects the thoughts of a great many elderly Englishmen and women. As those thoughts, all of which I share, are invariably well-founded and correct, I hereby demand that he be elevated to the highest ministerial position, or failing that, 
be made Pope, his opposition to Catholic emancipation notwithstanding. Yours, CB, retired. In chapter 18 of Sketches by Boz, Charles Dickens described Sibthorpe as a ferocious-looking gentleman, with a complexion almost as sallow as his linen, and whose huge black moustache would give him the appearance of a figure in a hairdresser's window if his countenance possessed the thought that is communicated to those waxen caricatures. He is the most amusing person in the house. Can anything be more exquisitely absurd than the burlesque grandeur of his air as he strides up the lobby, his eyes rolling like those of a Turk's head in a cheap Dutch clock? He is generally harmless, though, and always amusing. Several other people who met him commented on his excessive hirsuteness, his wearing of a Regency frock coat, top hat and Wellington boots, decades after they'd gone out of fashion, and his habit of walking around everywhere carrying a magnifying glass. Many said that he was certainly not the sharpest knife in the cutlery drawer, but all agreed that he had a belligerent, total and unshakable belief in the absolute veracity of everything he thought and said. He knew exactly what was right, and most definitely what was wrong. Now, I'm not sure if he was a pathological contrarian. Is that a recognised condition? But he certainly was against much more than he was for. I read a list while I was researching this of all the parliamentary bills he opposed during his 30-year career, and it's enormous. Suffice it to say, if you proposed a thing between 1826 and 1856, the chances were that Sibthorpe would be passionately against it. The highlights are that he was against both Catholic and Jewish emancipation, the Reform Act and the repeal of the Corn Laws. As we've just heard, he wasn't a fan of the Great Exhibition or the National Gallery either. He also took the side of the cavalry troopers who charged an unarmed crowd of civilians who were protesting in favour of something called universal manhood suffrage. Essentially, one man, one vote, irrespective of social station, religion or race at St Peter's Field in Manchester in 1819. Mounted on horseback and chopping down with sabres, these brave men killed 15 people and injured countless more in what became known as the Peterloo Massacre. Now, when voices of outrage were raised in Parliament over the troopers' conduct, Sibthorpe said that he thought their conduct had been excellent and that they were in fact the victims of the shameful reporting of a base and profligate press. And that's not all. Sibthorpe loudly announced that he thought horse thieves should be strung up the moment they were caught and their bodies then used for dissection. He also said that convicted criminals shouldn't be transported to Australia to serve out their sentences but should instead be executed because it would save the country lots of money. And that hackney cab drivers should be subject to punishingly stringent regulations because their cabs were so filthy they were spreading the cholera. He was also known to regularly play down the brutal reality of flogging as a punishment in the army. Grown men's backs torn to ribbons, brushed off with a it'll do them good or they're scum and they probably deserved it. So he wasn't always the comedy buffoon. One witness noted down the reaction in the house whenever Sibthorpe got up to speak. The moment the colonel rose, he was saluted with a volley of cheers which were repeated at the conclusion of every sentence, the intervals between being filled up with every variety of laughter and schoolboy noise. 
the cry of an owl and the mewing of a cat being ever and anon heard from the gallery. The thing is, like all historical figures, Sibthorpe was a complex frock coat full of contradictions, neither total hero nor indeed total monster. He was known to have actually supported a petition calling for the abolition of slavery. Although this being Sibthorpe, he said he was dubious about some of the abolitionists' claims and he was in favour of offering all the plantation owners compensation for their financial loss. But his support, though, seems to have been more than merely vocal. There's a story that supporters of William Wilberforce's Emancipation Bill, who were known as Saints, often couldn't get into the Houses of Commons to take part in or watch the debate because the room was already full. So Sibthorpe used to lodge in a nearby boarding house overnight so that he could get there early and save them all a place. This was related to a journalist who wrote, Mackintosh went one day to the House of Commons at 11 in the morning to take a place. They were all taken on the benches below the gangway and on asking the doorkeeper how they happened to be all taken so early, he said, Oh, sir, there's no chance of getting a place, for Colonel Sibthorpe sleeps at the boardy house close by and comes here every morning by 8 o'clock and takes places for all the saints. So, not all bad either. Notice how you can take this story one of two ways. Was it a boardy house or a boarding house? And does it really matter? On the one hand, Sibthorpe can be seen as an anti-slavery supporter who was willing to go that extra mile to make sure that fellow abolitionists got to take part in an important debate. On the other hand, he can be seen as an anti-slavery supporter who shagged himself stupid at a brothel and still got out of bed early to make sure that fellow abolitionists got to take part in an important debate. Either way, it seems as though for once, the good colonel did the right thing. There is a final mystery that perhaps any rogues who live in the city of Lincoln can answer. I've seen a brief report of Sibthorpe having driven a coach and four horses down the very aptly named Steep Hill in the city in order to win a wager. But aside from one mention, I can find no other reference online. So, is this an urban myth? If you're an expert on Lincoln history, let me know. Now, it's very, very easy to mock Sibthorpe, but his permanently offended ignorance and absolute moral certainty can still be found today, whether it's in the comments section of the Mail Online, on the right, or some insane thread on Twitter, on the left. There are probably more Sibthorpes around than you might think. Next time on Rogues Gallery Uncovered. What rhymes with tits? Putting the verse into perverse with Russia's rudest poet, Ivan Barkov. This will be the first of two slightly shorter episodes in a row as I'm going on holiday next week and I've got sun cream and flip-flops to buy. Don't forget, as I always say, to follow the podcast on Apple if that's where you're listening to it or subscribe if it's anywhere else. Visit roguesgalleryuncovered.com and sign up to my newsletter, browse the online shop, lots of roguish t-shirts and mug merch to be enjoyed there or make a small donation to my Patreon page. All monies are gratefully received and go straight back into the podcast. Thanks to those of you who already contribute. Link to the website is in the show notes. Now, before I go, a quick quiz. In this episode's tale, the letter-writing character who was just as reactionary as Colonel Sibthorpe signs off with the initials CB, retired. This is a subtle tribute to another famous but totally fictional character who was also well known for being old, grumpy, stuck in the past and reactionary. And in the army. 
Can you name him? His initials, CB. Drop me a line at Simon at Rogues Gallery Online if you think you know, and I'll give you a powerful shout-out on the next episode so that all can marvel at your intellectual prowess. Email address is, unsurprisingly, in the show notes. Right, I'm off to the flip-flop shop. Have a great week, and I'll see you yesterday. <laughs>